Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. And I am Sparrow. And I am Andrew McCarran. And we're here today to take a very special plunge into nature and the presence or the concept of a dear um, term that, you know, Western Civ has carried around and um, polished and, you know, variously kept in good order at any rate, called hell. So we're going to talk today about hell and all of its manifestations near and far. And I want to say just at the out, I think this has to be at least a two-part, just yeah. putting that out there. Yeah, or maybe even six parts. Yeah, like a mini-series, you know. I think <laughs> that um, hell deserves deserves our verbal love yeah it could actually be one of those like uh, tv shows you know just call it hell as a detective he's in hell um and he's uh, searching out criminals you know because even in hell there's crimes like there were movies made in nazi germany i saw this movie once like it's an actual detective movie made in germany during the Second World War under Hitler, and this uh, detective is trying to solve a crime of a, a serial killer. And it's pretty ironic, you know. Hitler's killing 12 million people, and this guy's got to find, you know, someone who killed three people. It's ironic yeah. and, and, you know, complex morally, but very uh-huh. poignant. And that's what our show is going to be like. Uh, the detective in hell. It's an excellent premise, Sparrow. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm very good at coming up with ideas for TV shows. It's just writing the dialogue, uh, thinking up the names of the characters. That part I'm a little weak on. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's what we need a writing team for. You True, know, yes. No good one TV person, show is... Yeah, one person handles the romance scenes. One person describes scenery. It reminds me a little bit of Blade Runner, the movie by Ridley Scott. Oh, yeah. And the character of Robert De Niro, who plays the sort of, um, you know, vignette within that movie, and his somewhat, I don't know if it's famous, um, line from that movie is, one man in, one man out. That's a good but to line. write a, 
Uh, yeah, but to write a series, um, a mini series on hell about a detective, et cetera, et cetera, it's going to require teamwork. Yeah, luckily require, that's uh, how these things are done. Who's going to introduce us to hell? Wouldn't Andrew be our theological guide? Isn't he the most theologically adept of uh, the three of us? I, I have very little to say about hell. Oh. They didn't teach you in Harvard about hell? Not really. Um, I would say that many wisdom traditions, religious traditions, have some sort of um, some hell, some, some underworld, mm. some um, subterranean realm for purgation. This is a common trope. Um, it differs, though, from tradition to tradition. You know, I'm writing this book about a classicist, huh. Bill Mullen. And I, I was thinking recently about the um, an ancient Greek religion. The uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. The Catabasis? Catabasis? I don't Catabasis. know. I've Catabasis? barely heard of it. It's this um, this epic convention involving the mm. hero's trip into the underworld mm. and back, like um, I guess Orpheus journeys mm -hmm. to bring Eurydice back up to the uh, to the terrestrial to the to Earth. Mm. I know in the Odyssey, what is it, Book Eleven? Oh, Odysseus yeah. um, encounters the shades of loved ones at the mouth of Hades before um, mm. going back to sea, and then. I don't know. In Christianity, there are examples, too, like the story of Lazarus. Oh. Who dies, goes on some sort of um, subterranean journey, and then Jesus brings him back to life after uh, after four days. I'm interested in this convention, sort of a hell, but not um, in the Christian sense. I mean, there are similarities, but there are also some striking differences. Um, simply that our Lord Jesus Christ, as I recall, you know, his first stop after the resurrection was to hell. Yeah, that's which I've always found interesting. I mean, and I've also found hell to be like the most interesting real estate to one. Um, and my thesis is that our Lord Jesus Christ, after being tortured and left on the cross and, you know, having a really bad day, he needed to blow <laughs> off a little a little steam, you know, and I think hell sort of perhaps served that function for him. You mean like going to um, a club, kind of? You know, going all the way, like on some real, like deep plunge into that mm. which is literally diabolical before mm. he could, in a complete way, re-enter the throne room the um i guess he's on the right side of god god mm. leans into him because satan's no longer there on the left side of god or lucifer he split the world in half and went down to hell right and founded that uh, you know as i say mysterious city of the dead necropolis city of dis yeah, that's dis. what, uh, that's what I mean, they call it in uh, Dante. Dante yeah, and that's dis, the great, D-I-S. Um, I, I was in this magazine. I was part of a collective that put out a magazine called The City of Dis, which was like back in the 90s when people would say, uh, you know, you're dissing me. So it was mm -hmm. kind of a pun, I thought. 
The disc, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I did look into Hell is a Word, if you'd like to hear some of that. Yeah, I'm interested in hell. I don't know anything about that word, I don't think. There's a literal, um, you know, H-E-L in in Anglo-Saxon. It's of Norse derivation. And, you know, in that incarnation, it refers to cave or cavern or concealed place. It's derived from the Proto-Indo-European, you know, Kel, um, that is asterisk K-E-L. Um, you know, these are, this is a made-up word, you know, this is a, a word that, you know, is preliterate. Um, and it means something like to cover, hide, and save, hmm. um, you know, which is a trope that you associate with caves and caverns, with dragons and gold. Um, you know, with, um, with the pyramid, with the great pyramids, that cavern inside the great pyramid, um, you know, that secret chamber, it's like, uh, like a kind of pineal gland or, you know, like the little white snake, Kundalini Hmm. or something like that. Like there's some hidden thing. But the one thing I would say is that, you know, this Kel and, um, hell, persists in in um, Norse mythology, for example, in Valhalla, which literally means Hall of the Slain, but also represents a kind of beatific condition for, you know, within the Germanic heroic tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, the Halla means Hall. And literally, you know, our word Hall comes from the same derivation as hell yeah i was even thinking there's a song um i'm on a highway to hell and i was thinking like a better lyric would be i'm in a hallway (laughs) of hell because then it's circular it's like a loop like you can't escape you know the hallway Hmm. to hell is um going back on itself Hmm. and then the real kicker is that hell is not only a place, but is also an old Norse god, Des, is a woman. Yeah, sometimes Heleja, but hell, H-E-L, is her name. And she is the person who covers over something, um, refers to a god that conceals. But she's also literally the daughter of Loki. And that she, yeah, she presides by order of Odin over the lowest, the most um, bottom last place of creation, which is called Niflheim. And Nifl, I got Nifl, means mist. (laughs) Yeah, it's the land of the mist. M-I-S-T. Yeah, mist. Wow. And, yeah, and her flesh is um is blue tinged it's sort of flesh colored but it's got this blue hue to it and Mm. she's also characterized as gloomy and downcast she's a bit sad Mm. but she's also involved with a plot against odin and that is the resurrection of the god balder balder yeah Yeah. he's in the thor comics balder you know so that's the that's kind of the wrap on um, the actual word hell, which is an interesting word also because it includes God. 
I guess. I mean, isn't L the Jewish? Oh, oh yeah. Side L, of the yeah, like, yeah. Mm. yeah, like my real name, Michael. Who is like God? Me, Ka, L. Who? Who? Me means who. Ka means is like. L means God. I mean, all those names, Gabriel, ah. um, all the names of the angels. Well, Samuel. In L. Yeah, my name, Samuel, means he who hears God. Oh, wow. That's why you're doing a podcast, not a, not a vlog. That word hell entered into the popular lexicon through the Norse channels. Norse Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. Anglo-Saxon, yeah. Which is related, I think. Anglo-Saxon kind of related to those Germanic languages, I believe. Well, I mean, uh, Anglo-Saxon is low Frisian, old low Frisian German. You know, it's on that northern coast you know, that compasses Denmark and the Netherlands, say. Yeah, the, the quintessential Old English um, epic, uh, Beowulf, takes place in Denmark. Anyway, so I understand. So yeah. that's a sign yeah. of the link between the Nordic and the uh, and the English. I've always been interested in, in hell as a um, psychological trope, as a... Hmm state of uh, hmm. a state of consciousness or is a spiritual state I guess that's a pretty modern understanding of it um, maybe not but especially in um, like a Jungian stuff I which has some definite um, Christian dimensions to it the um, just the, the journey of the uh, the psyche or the the ego the um, the need to experience the shadow self or dark subterranean psychic realities in some larger process of um, actualization or individuation or something. I have a quotation here. Can I read it? Oh, yeah. This is from oh, yeah, definitely. a Jungian who's pretty well known. He works a lot with dreams and dream interpretation. His name is Jeremy Taylor. And... Um, so he's uh, he's going to talk about uh, spiritual experience um, of dreams and especially in the uh, into like descents into like hellish depths. Here, the work with this dream also demonstrated another great spiritual truth: that only when a person's spiritual perspective extends completely into the darkest and most distressing and evil aspects of both personal and collective life into the most noxious and base of base matter as the alchemists avow can the true gold of authentic and reliable spiritual perspective be created throughout our lives our dreams continually bring us metaphors of the worst that is in us and the worst that is in the world along with the other joyous and wonderful things of our dreams to provide us with the opportunity of turning our own base matter, whatever it may be, into the gold of authentic and reliable spiritual experience. But how? How do you do that? What's the I, trick? I don't know. I don't know. But it does describe some sort of like internal descent, yeah. like a catabasis, as I was saying earlier from the um, ancient Greek tradition, only um, as an internal cycle. I mean, I mean Blake had something analogously to say, you know, in that 
oft-quoted phrase, if the fool persists in his madness, he will become wise. In his folly, yeah. In his folly, thank you. The fool who persists in his folly, I think is the phrase, will become wise. That's the from the Proverbs of Hell, mm. the, uh, the sort of selection of Proverbs by William Blake. Which we should maybe look at. I was also thinking about Charles Olson, his poem, In Hell, In Cold mm. Thicket. Oh. Mm. But Proverbs of Hell, that would be a great dumb addition oh, yeah. to this oh, multi-series. Yeah, well, I, yeah, think we should, yeah. I think we should do that one next. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, and I love those proverbs. I mean, they're a big influence on me. I write lots of proverbs, and I, I'm always trying to like come up to the level of proverbs of hell. Sparrow, what, what do you think about that? I know you're no big fan of Jung, and uh, right. but what, what do you make of that? That quote, the idea that through dreams or through your conscious mental life that spiritual growth involves these periodic journeys into the darkness or evil. I don't know what you call it. Yeah, he did use the word evil. I was surprised that he used the word evil. Yeah. I I mean, I had a couple of thoughts. I was thinking about uh, Freud's concept of sublimation, which we must have discussed at some point here, that um, which happens a lot with writing where you, you know, you're writing things and then you realize that, you know, utter miseries of your life are coming out. In my case, you know, often in the form of jokes or some kind of whimsical story or something, but that you're kind of using that. That's the material, you know, every artist devours his youth, I think is some phrase I read somewhere, that, that art seems to really do that. You know, you feel that the great artists are kind of cannibalizing their pain and turning it into gold, literally. You know? mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think also on a practical basis that if an individual in their lives meets with a continuous refrain of success, you know, they get good marks in school, they are in, you know, some varsity sports, they (laughs) have no problem with boys or girls, they become a Rhodes Scholar, they, you know, go to Harvard Divinity School, they enter the, you know, do this, do that, like, do all the right things, become an... No, but I I also am sort of edging up on this idea of a kind of sanctity and everything's just like how goes your way. Then that character is inherently weakened because they have not confronted adversity Mm. and they don't have tools to know how to bend in the Mm. wind you know they've Mm. never been hit hard and so they become brittle yeah and so i think there's that sort of practical character formation aspect of needing to Mm. go through Mm. some dark nights on the cliff definitely what what the um, 16th century carmelite monk and writer theologian saint john of the cross described as the dark dark night of the soul 
mm-hmm. the night of um, purgation by aridity, the, the desiccation of uh, and the descent into um, the valley of the shadow of death, and then there is there is um, a resurrection experience in that poem on the other side of it, which is a, a real preoccupation of Christianity, of course, more so than other religions. And also you're quoting the Psalms, the uh, Valley of Death, you know, of course, is Psalm 23. Yeah, Psalm 23. And the life of David, who, if you believe he wrote the Psalms, if he really existed, um, is full of adversity and uh, almost extinction. You know, he's like a kind of Che Guevara hunted in the hills um, almost to death. Mm. So he's full of his life is full of adventure, torment, danger. And that out of that, he writes the Psalms, which are these great uh, poems of sort of kind of religious desperation, you might say. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing about the nature of hell, just to go back to, it's a place. Hmm. It's a, concept for a place in which there's some maximal piling up, stacking, intensification of pain, Mm. right? Or pain and suffering, usually manifested in in physical pain, usually manifested as a place that is... um, of fire and burning and flesh burning and stuff like that. Man, right? Can like I it's read all based this poem? on a place where you're going to? Uh, yeah. Is it going to uh, talk about? You know, we I, I forgot. Taste hell. I mean, that's what we're trying to give people is a little spritzer of hell. I uh, I forgot that we were discussing hell this week. I thought we were still having our friends spontaneously pop out a uh, suggestion at the last moment. But uh, Sam called me 15 minutes before we started, and then I grabbed this book by Paul Eluard, Paul Eluard, uh, who's one of the surrealist poets, maybe the greatest surrealist poet, I believe, born in 1895 at Saint-Denis on the outskirts of Paris. Um, Anyway, this is a book called Capital of Pain, cover by uh, Picasso. And uh, and I opened it at random, and I came up to this poem, which is uh, just titled Roman numeral six. It's part of a series. And what is the series called? The Little Just Ones. And here's Roman numeral six. The monster of flight sniffs even the feathers of this bird singed by gunfire. Along a wall of tears, its moan vibrates. And the scissors of eyes cut the melody that was budding till now in the hunter's heart. I just, you know, talking about pain, and it just seemed to be like poems of kind of, you know, personal, individual, and horrible pain. Jim, and I think it does give a little bit of a kind of taste of hell, that poem. I like the bird on the wall in the moan. It's a very, very intense poem. Yeah, short but all made of tears. Yeah, yeah, along a wall of tears, its moan vibrates, and that almost, except that you don't, 
sort of associate hell with tears. You because you, you think of it as being very hot and full of flames and people writhing around, the tears evaporating immediately. But but still, along a wall of tears, its moan vibrates. Does give a little bit of a kind of sense of hell. And then the scissors of eyes cut the melody that was budding till now in the hunter's heart. So it's kind of like a place where where every melody is immediately destroyed, is expunged by the kind of the force of melancholy, evil, brooding, hard to know what exactly. Yeah, I didn't I didn't hear the scissors as eyes fragmenting song. I kind of didn't necessarily feel a evil or painful association with that. I sort of felt like that which is natural, which is the bird's song, the human condition or our human act is to cut it up into parts and maybe even like in a cut-up method, reposition it, like change its its inherent nature to huh. make things. Do you know what it, I mean? Like analyze it and recombine it, almost like uh, cubism uh, cuts apart physical reality and then recombines it into aesthetic uh, object. Is that what you mean? That is what I mean. Yeah, oh. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like maybe that is it has a little taste of hell where you need to constantly be changing what is or improving or fixing, you know, or trimming or, you know, all of those natural human acts, um, you know, taken too far can be creating, um, I don't know, chaos. Reminds me of the the conclusion of The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. I assure these fragments, um, what is that, I assure these fragments against my rune or yeah, that sounds right. Tiresias in the rubble heap of history and culture, piecing hmm. together new forms from from the fragments. It reminds me also of uh, the the sort of uh, villain in uh, Blake's in William Blake's longer prophetic books. This character Eurizen, U R I Z E N. I think it's pronounced Eurizen, and it's sort of symbolizes reason itself as I think Blake felt that some kind of like, well, Blake believed in this trans uh, valuation of values. Anyway, some professor somewhere told me this, told the class. Right. That he believed that what people think is uh, the devil is really God. What people think is God is really the devil. And that the greatest evil is the power of reason. And the greatest good is the power of impulse and desire. The powers that we associate with Satan are actually divine qualities. And the qualities that we associate with God, kind of frowning judgment and weighing everything on the scales, using your reason, that is evil. So I, that's what I take it. What That's what it reminded me what you were saying, uh, Sam, is how the reason cuts up reality, uses its scissors to cut everything up and kind of classify it, formulate it, make it, Mm. give it uh, some sort of rational purpose, and thus destroy it. (laughs) 
the fear, mm-hmm. the fearful symmetry. Yeah. Mm. What's interesting is, of course, you know, it's very difficult to talk about hell without talking about heaven, you know, mm. and including Blake, you know, the marriage of heaven and hell. Oh, but yeah. they're like a du- duality, dualissimo. Um, yeah, you know, the like two a married right, couple. Yeah, they, they're kind of uh, right out together and constitute a little bit of the omega, alpha, and omega, proto, proto, uh, telofteos, I guess it is. You know, the, the beginning and end of um, what is, you know, that hell is associated with that which is underground and heaven is associated with that which is above the sky and that both of them constitute places to go um, and are, you know, connected to, yeah, opposite places and are connected to futurity. But I feel like it's all part of like a false locational guidance that it's all based on a thinking map um, and that it's a system that's cut like those scissors, the world in two, mm. you know, yeah. and that it's yeah. all part of that Cartesian split, you know, that we imposed on what is and this, also this it's my uh, take. It's also according to the Jehovah's Witness that I was getting around to uh, discussing, because I studied with the Jehovah's Witnesses, I forget now whether it was two and a half years or three and a half years, but I spent a lot of time studying this book I'm holding in my hand, which is called What Does the Bible Really Teach? It's sort of their recent handbook of, uh, you know, all the wisdom of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I didn't get that far with my teacher in my two and a half or three and a half years. I think we got to page 100, it looks like. But Mm. uh, they don't believe in hell. They believe the Jehovah's Witnesses take everything directly from the Bible, or so they claim. And they uh, seem to feel that heaven and that that the con not this concept of heaven but the concept of hell as we understand it is a pagan concept overlaid onto the scriptures and i think i'm going to read this section here page 58 what really happens at death what happens at death is no mystery to jehovah the creator of the brain he knows the truth and in his word the bible He explains the condition of the dead. Its clear teaching is this. When a person dies, he ceases to exist. Death is the opposite of life. The dead do not see or hear or think. Not even one part of us survives the death of the body. We do not possess an immortal soul or spirit. So uh, anyway, that's, uh, yeah, it's pretty radical. What a a bummer. That's Jehovah's Witness, like, orthodox teaching? That's their exact teaching. I mean, they do believe that there's a, a heaven, but uh, but I think maybe you don't directly go there. I don't know. I think they believe that you die, you go into the ground. This is more or less what orthodox Judaism and orthodox Christianity believe. You, you die, you go into the ground, you're not doing anything. You just don't exist, really. Then in the last, in the resurrection, the last judgment, you are resurrected and judged. 
if you're judged correctly, if you pass, you go to heaven, but only 144,000 people are allowed in heaven. Hmm. The rest of the sort of saved people live on the eternal earth. The earth is eternal, according to the Bible. So that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. And then if you don't like, uh, if, you, if you don't accept, uh, if, you, if you don't pass the muster, you just die and disappear forever. There's oh. no hell. So you're kind of on ice if you're part of the 144,000. When you die, you go into stasis. Yeah, and I'm then not sure. I'm not awake the resurrection. I think every, maybe you go directly to heaven if you're one of the 144,000. Maybe you, you're in stasis, but everybody else is in stasis. You know, you know. your your um, numerical point brings up something in memory. The the um, square, central square in New Haven, oh, the city of New Haven was designed to accommodate. Its proportions were designed to accommodate 144,000 people. Huh. Based on what? Just based on the biblical. Um, the, the, in colonial times, it was designed to accommodate the saved. The number huh. from, I guess, the book of Revelation, 144,000. Does my, that include like a social distancing or? <laughs> shoulder to shoulder. Shoulder to so shoulder, you can fit 144,000 people exactly in that space, that the proportions of the square as it exists today are based upon that. Um, and and that it's only New Haven. New Haven is the most spiritual place on earth that they, that they, they're the only people that took this into account as far as you know. Yes, they had all that Calvinistic. Credit. Some of those Connecticut uh, folks were also part of the triangle trade and they knew how to pack people in. Efficiently oh, yeah. because they loaded up the slave ships huh. in in Africa, and you know, I'm not right. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Similar Ghostly, theory. Ghastly. And uh, again, you know, talk that about is, hell. That's yeah, hell about on hell earth, experience. and the hell experience of being in the, the you know the slave ships and under the deck. Yeah. You know, it is. It's almost a. And also, I think water, because I just read this weird book. Uh, it's a um, mystery novel called A Queer Kind of Umbrella by George Baxt, B-A-X-T. It's right next to me here. That's why I know that immediately know everything about it. And <laughs> it's kind of ultimately or partially about um, illegal Chinese alien, illegal Chinese workers being uh, imported into the U.S. Uh, in these ships, in the holds of ships that, that where they suffer somewhat similar tragedies to the to the Middle Passage. So there's a, they talk about rape and about being thirsty and hungry. You know, mm. and these these are qualities I, that I associate with hell. And I mean, I've certainly read Dante's Inferno. And, I think those kind of perennial torments of thirst and hunger are, are part of the deal, as I recall. So, because they were treated as cargo, many were thrown to the bottom of the ocean um, and mm. survived the um, Middle Passage. So, it's a, a further depth of hell. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the hell below hell. 
I mean, one thing that out of this occurs to me to ask, and that is from the standpoint of hell being a place of very concentrated pain and suffering, from where you sit and look out and speak, like what is your vision of the ultimate pain and ultimate suffering hmm. for you yourself? Because I, I mean, remember, I, I think that there's a lot of uh, when we think of hell, there's a there's a, like an immediate go to to physical suffering, but I guess I'm asking. Also, like mental suffering, what is the mental pain? What is the pain that one derives in an eternal way through the place of hell? Yeah, etc. I'd like to answer that question. And I would say, um, for me, what comes to mind immediately is like a, a Tower of Babel experience hmm. of the, the inability to um, convey meaning to other people like a, oh. a breakdown of um, communication of the speech act hmm. and confusion and estrangement as a result like hell hell for me maybe is not having some imagining a world where i don't have someone who understands me or someone with whom i can speak hmm. um that's a hellish thought hmm. Hmm. I've always been um, affected by the biblical story of the Tower of Babel for this reason, I think. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's it also is an echo of Nickel, who postulates that God is meaning. Um, so that would fall into a hellish state. I guess that is hell, is that place to which there is no God. Like God is hmm. elsewhere, right? I was, yeah, I always thought that Hieronymus Bosch. I don't know if um, Hieronymus Bosch was painting um, what he was painting exactly, but it's been suggested that some of the canvases are hellscapes, and um, like the garden. Yeah, no doubt. Lights. What's that? I, I said no doubt. Full of Gorgon. The, um, but I always thought that the character, none of the characters are, I always thought that that canvas had to do with the crisis of communication. Oh. The inability to connect or talk or understand. There's something scattered. There's something chaotic about its composition that I think has implications within the uh, realm of communication and meaning. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of uh, the. I was thinking of this when I immediately, when I realized we were discussing hell. The famous quote by Jean Paul Sartre: uh, "Hell is other people." When he wrote this uh, this play, "No Exit," where these people are waiting in a waiting room, kind of talking to each other, and gradually they realize they're just kind of chatting, but they're kind of all sort of annoyed with each other, like people that don't really know each other are. And, um, uh, and, getting and, some and then they realize at one point that they can never leave this room, that they're stuck there forever with these people. And that's what hell is other people as means. But for you, Andrew, hell is no other people. <laughs> or hell is other people. Other people, but other yeah. people whom I can't speak. Yeah. Be heard. Um, it's all scrambled. It's a babble, a babble experience. 
Or maybe yeah, it like reminds the end of me the of the. Um, it reminds me of the end of the Devil and Miss Jones, <laughs> the pornograph, the pornographic that was done by those two brothers out of San Francisco. I forget their names, but they did, you know, Behind the Green Door, I think it was, and also The Devil and Miss Jones. And I believe at the end, you know, she she attempts suicide or she commits suicide and then she's brought back to life and then she dies again. I don't remember how. Maybe she completes this suicide thing. I don't recall. But she winds up in a room um, in a state of high arousal in this room with a man who is incapable of engaging in the act of love, of mm. physical love. Um, and she's sort of in a kind of nervous state seeking to masturbate herself. And, you know, this is her eternity, I guess. Um, yeah, that would also be like not being able to communicate you know and it's associated i guess also i guess like with loneliness i want to tell you what my idea of hell is and uh that is my idea of hell is to be put into a coffin and buried alive um that's happened before yeah that that's happened yeah and i i consider that period of time until the oxygen wears out um it forces me to um, really seek to get control of myself, you know, in my mind, because, um, you know, I need to be prepared for that event, um, frankly. Yeah, there is cremation, uh, although I suppose you could wake up in the middle of being cremated, which mm. seems like almost a kind of traditional vision of hell. You know, in the 19th century, they would people would bury themselves with a little string in the coffin, and it would be attached to a bell above ground, and you could pull the the string and ring the bells in case you came back to life in the coffin. Oh, that's charming! A horrifying story about some coffin that was exhumed century later for whatever reason. They opened it and. There were fingernail marks on the, the inside of the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, they're really scary. Yeah, I've read about that. Yeah, that stuff <laughs> really is freaky. I hear you, Sam. I feel yeah. that there was a rumor where I grew up. I don't know if this happened or if it was just, you know, a white tale of a kid who fell through the ice on a certain pond behind the neighborhood where we lived and was pulled under by the underwater current and couldn't find the hole. Oh, wow. Kind of a similar... And then he died. Yeah, and that, that was a cautionary tale not to test your, you know, the ice too much. Like, mm -hmm. not to like, go walking out on the ice if you're not sure how thick it is. Because mm -hmm. we used to play out, out on the ice a lot, in the pond. It's probably pretty dangerous. Mm. I think the formula for that is three for me, four for all. What's that? Like, yeah, three inches of ice, you can go on, you know, by yourself, stand on the ice if it's three inches thick. And if it's four inches thick, then, you know, a group of you can be out on that ice and um, not fear the ice cracking and plunging into the 
underwater, cold, cold, ice, cold water. <laughs> but yeah. how do you know how thick the ice is? You can't really tell. Right? Can't tell. I don't know. Bore it. Bore. I think you get a an awl and you bore it out. I guess I'm not sure. Yeah, that seems possible. I mean, mm. my immediate thought about what is the greatest hell it reminded me of conversations I had as a kid where people would discuss whether we would rather be frozen to death or burned to death. Oh, and, well, no, my answer is to be, I'm oh, sorry, go on. Oh, yeah. What is your answer? Andrew? Oh, I'd much rather I think be frozen than burned. Really? Yeah. Why? Well, because if you're frozen, I think you just kind of go to sleep, right? Maybe. Oh, I see. You don't suffer excruciating torment. It's not toward the end, whereas burning, I, I, I don't know. I can't imagine that that ever gets better. <laughs> well, I think right towards the end, it improves. It does? All those Buddhists, you know, a lot of the, the, the self-emulating Buddhists do that, right? Yeah. Well, they're meditating, you know, they don't really care. It <laughs> happened in my meditation group when my, my guru was put in prison. A uh, number of people, some were just followers like me and some were monks or nuns, I think, self-immolated. I remember when it was happening. Really? Yeah. Like the, this would be in the 70s. Maybe he went into prison in 71, something like that. Why was he in prison? Why? Yeah. He was in prison for murder. He was uh, imprisoned. He was convicted of murdering some of his ex-disciples, maybe six of his ex Disciple, I think uh, monks. Did but then happen? he yeah. was he was arrested, convicted, imprisoned. But then later uh, there was a different uh, administration. Indira Gandhi's son briefly became prime minister, and under him, my guru Baba was exonerated a hundred percent. You know, he wasn't pardoned. They said he was not guilty. So. So there were, yeah, there was, uh, so when I joined the group, actually, my guru was in prison. <laughs> Did that change your feelings toward him? I think, you know, I was, it was 74, and I was already kind of, uh, you know, had come through the 1960s where I thought I was going to go to prison for not, uh, you know, being drafted into Vietnam. And that was one possibility that I thought I would really face. And also lots of great people were in prison, it seemed to me. You know, people I respected, you know, Black Panthers and Chicago 8. And uh, so I, I I was a little bit pro-prisoner, certainly pro-political prisoner. I mean, I don't know. It was strange. I remember it being slightly strange to have a guru in prison. It was certainly unusual. I don't know what... Now I'm still kind of puzzling over the whole thing, to be honest. <laughs> mm. I'm not sure that he was innocent. I'm not sure that he was guilty. It's a mystery. One thing I wanted to circle back to, hell, in terms of a location. And, you know, we hypothesize a kind of rural location to hell. But it, that seems incredibly fallacious at this juncture. But one can agree that hell constitutes a state of mind, just as heaven does. Hmm. Is that, does that seem... Well, that seems what the Jungians are saying, right? 
Yeah, and it's it's definitely present in popular speech. Oh, that that year was hell year. That was oh, a, yeah. Well, that was a hellish period. Or trust and, and nobody ever says that was a heavenly year. <laughs> rarely, yeah, rarely do you hear. I don't know that I've ever heard that said. I was struggling. My friend told me um, several years ago. I was struggling, but I, I traveled to hell and back. That's what he said. Mm, yeah. But those are still event driven right oh yeah like hell is you know i had to walk across this desert you know i had to slay this dragon i had to do this i had to do that those are all events driven but i mean hell is also something that is immediately pressed through our state of mind am i correct that in a way one could as easily say, oh, that was a hellish year. Oh, that was a terrific, that was a heavenly year. That in a way, it's in one's interpretation that hell is kind of also has this interpretive uh, flavor to it. You mean like the same that year could be heavenly or hellish, kind of depending on how you look at it. Sort of. It's like Hotel California. You know, <laughs> this could be heaven or this could be hell. Like it's mm -hmm. there's an ambiguity. Um, and I guess for me, I really want to say more than anything else in terms of this idea of location is that everything is where you are, that all phenomena is based on where you are. I don't see, practically like speaking, or logically speaking, how it could be otherwise, because nothing exists except for where you are, you know, in the present, in what we call the moment. Does that make sense? You mean, you're saying what, that uh, India is not here? You're Because you're in like uh, uh, Lake Hill, there is no India? <laughs> Yeah, I am very much saying that because India is a concept. It's uh -huh. a word that we have a relative kind of agreement about what that might be. But really, it's part of the landmass of this planet that we inhabit. Um, and India is one way in which we scissor, scissor up the land in order to try to understand it. And also, you don't know for yeah. sure that there's an India. Like, I went to India in 1987. It seemed to be there then, but I don't know that it's still there. I mean, you read the New York Times. They seem to say it's there, but you don't know for a fact. The only thing, like this guy Barclay, if this is what you're saying, I, like I yeah. I read this book by that philosopher Barclay in college, and it never left me you know he said really there's no proof that there's anything behind you you don't know for a fact that there's anything behind you you could turn around and look at it and it seems to be there but then you turn around again you don't know it's still there and you can't mm -hmm. really prove that really anything exists in fact you know mm -hmm. that you're not just dreaming and imagining that this world exists right so, i so mean and at no the same time prove. Keeping in mind that that kind of that kind of pessimism, skepticism. skepticism is diabolical itself. You know, <laughs> is a kind of foil against the 
the exigencies of faith, uh, you know, from a Christian standpoint. But also, you know, I really take to heart, you know, that saying, I think it was of Democritus, you know, that all I perceive is my body. That is true. All we each individually perceive is the is an extension of our bodies. You mean like right? we see through our senses or something like that, and our senses yeah. are in our bodies, something like that. Yeah, exactly. And that's all that exists is our senses, which we seem to be locationally kind of like Barkley looking over his shoulder. You know, we seem to exist behind the sensorium or within, I guess, is a more comfortable way of saying it. Well, what are your favorite depictions of hell? <laughs> can I ask, can I change course for a second? Well, I mean, I think Dante's Inferno. You, are you are you talking about visual depictions or? Yeah, it could be visual, literary. I mean, I, I just. I'm I mean, just... it seems to me that Dante's Inferno, you know, is one of the greatest works ever written. Perhaps the greatest poem ever written, personally, I would say. Yeah, I would have to go with that. I mean, in terms of depictions of hell within the kind of Western scheme, you know, we got Milton and we got Dante. We've got mm-hmm. Wigglesworth also, uh, the Book of Doom. You know, there are various, various things. But my favorite is actually Dante's description of Satan um, um, in hell. Yeah. Which I would be happy to. I have it in, um, you know, our favorite translation of Dante, which I'm not sure is my favorite, but is Longfellow. Oh, uh, oh yeah, right. He's translated. Yeah, Satan appears in the. I think it's the 34th Canto of Hell. So we're near the. I think it's not my favorite because uh, I basically hate Longfellow. I'm a Longfellow. Oh, good. Yeah, this is the beginning. Can I read it? Yeah, please. He writes, Oh, what a marvel it appeared to me when I beheld three faces in his head, the one in front, and that vermilion was. Two were the others that were joined with his above the part of either shoulder, and they were joined together at the crest, and the right-hand one seemed twixt white and yellow. The left was such to look upon as those who come from where the Nile falls valleyward. Beneath each came forth two mighty wings, such as befitting were so great a bird. Sails of the sea I never saw so large. No feather had they, but as of bat their fashion was, and he was waving them, so that three winds proceeded forth therefrom. The one thing I missed in that quotation was a very important detail, and that comes in line 28. The emperor of the kingdom Dolorous, from his mid-breast forth, issued from the ice. And then he goes on and describes the scale. 
But that idea of Satan encased like chest high in ice. Hmm. Yeah. That's in- is interesting. <laughs> you know, it is sort of like, you know, that's at the very bottom of hell. So it's the start of Dante's journey upward toward heaven. Um, and I think it's terrific. And that in um, in um, Paradise Lost, uh, <clears throat> Satan is in, I think, a frozen lake. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that that is a trope that's present in both epic poems that engage hell. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. I wonder where that comes from. It's, uh, is, is it from the book of Revelation, maybe? It's a good question. I don't. My, my inclination is to say no. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's a strange idea. Like nowadays we all, I think the popular conception of hell, as I was saying, is flames, heat, and um, uh, kind of writhing agony, but not... But Satan is sort of the lord of hell. Satan is kind of in charge. I guess I'm thinking a lot of Saturday Night Live skits where uh, Kate McKinnon is Satan and, uh, uh, you know, people like Mitch McConnell are coming to visit her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's this idea of Satan being kind of bound and unfree i love that idea though that he's i didn't real. i remembered him being entirely encased in ice uh, in in the inferno i like this idea that he's waving his wings and stirring up wind while as if trying to desperately free himself from the ice but fruitlessly i wonder if maybe when jesus was crucified somehow that plunged satan into a a glacier of ice <laughs> he was like trapped and bound by the goodness of jesus maybe, maybe that's what what jesus what jesus was doing in hell oh yeah i don't know do you know anything about that andrew like what jesus was he just like paying a social call or no it's 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 just a reference it, it, sam's right it, it, it has a, a biblical precedent it's um biblical basis it's present in one of the gospels i uh-huh. The gospel according to Matthew, which was the gospel that was written for um, a Jewish a Jewish population. I think it was written in Hebrew, right? Huh. But there's maybe I'm wrong. It's in one of the gospels, though, mentioned that Jesus did descend into hell prior to the resurrection, when he after he was um, interred in the tomb of Joseph Arimathea. But go- that's. But that's all? It doesn't explain what he does in hell? It just no. mentions in passing no. that he visited hell? Well, it's just one verse. Wow. It's just mm. one verse. But, you know, there's a lot of repetition across the synoptic Gospels because they were all based upon the same cluster of sources, pretty much. So mm. it's really interesting when you find some element in a Gospel that's present in um, no other Gospel. Yeah, and Matthew's the mm. first? Gospel. Uh, um, then the first gospel is the, I think, is the gospel according to Mark. That's the first, chronologically the first. The gospel according to Mark is written shortly after or during the fall of the second, the collapse of the second temple, in oh. the year, year seventy of the um, Common Era. If my memory serves correct. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. 
and please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.